0: If you would, take your Bibles and turn to John 11, and we're going to be working through verses 1 through 44. 1 through 44, and with anything that's this big, I'm going to work through it kind of in sections. Um, but little housekeeping issues before I go through this. I, when Pastor Chad gave me this verse... About two months ago, and I knew it was going to be on the resurrection of Lazarus, I thought to myself, a couple weeks before the actual resurrection Sunday, this is a gimme. This basically preaches itself. I'll read 44 verses and send you home, and that'll be it. The miracle that happens here is the last, and it's the final triumphant miracle of Jesus' ministry in the book of John. That is the story. But as I began to prep for it, and as I began to work through it, there were things that were jumping off the page to me that I hadn't really paid much attention to before. And as I began to work through it, I kept trying to go back to my original plan, but I felt God was revealing things to me through his word that I needed to lean into. And in an act of obedience, here I go. But the important thing about God's word is that no matter how many times I read it, no matter how many times I study it, no matter how many times that I think that I have it figured out, it keeps revealing truth to me over and over. It wasn't meant to be read like a normal story. It's for your life. And so, if you would, would you pray with me in our time together before I get moving through this fantastic passage of Scripture? Father God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for Jesus. And I thank you... ...for this story and how it will play in effect into our lives. I just ask that you would give me the strength and the power to do it justice... ...as we talk about this miracle that Jesus performs with his friend Lazarus. I just ask that you bless us as we come to you in humility. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the story is the resurrection of Lazarus. That is the plot. That is the main narrative. But as I started to frame this... I wanted to kind of look at it in a different direction. I wanted to look at it as from the beginning to the actual miracle. Because the miracle actually shows up in verse 44. So as I began to frame this, something popped into my head. And if you're a Cubs fan, I'm sorry, Keith. You can tune me out for this intro here. I'll tell you when to come back. But there's there's an event that happens in 1932. It's the Yankees World Series. The Yankees win this World Series in four games. There's no issue. There's no story. This... This was never a series, right, with the, at, with the Cubs. But the main story that came out of that particular World Series was this moment. The Babe Ruth called shot. That is an iconic thing. All, and us baseball historians, people who love this, will fight over the, the reality of it. But what happens is in the fifth inning, in a 4-4 game with a 2-2 count, Babe Ruth makes some sort of motion... To center field he calls a shot he's letting the world know that I'm going to take this ball and I'm going to deposit it over the center field fence never happened see I I knew I could count on Keith here so what so what became of this is that the Yankees ended up winning the game he hits the home run they go up five four but the next day the story was the called shot that was the narrative. That was the issue. That was the main thing that showed up in the papers, was the called shot. But if you look at it from a historical standpoint, things happened before that event. It was a 2-2 count. So four pitches were pitched. It was at a 4-4 tie. In fact, Babe Ruth had hit a three-run home run before this moment. Things happened before this event. But this became the event. Well, this is how this is the same. Jesus calls his shot in, the, in this particular passage, that is the narrative. But there are things that happen up before then that I want to zero in and really look at because I think we kind of read past it. We get in the habit of looking at the title of the paragraph in our Bible and say, Jesus raises Lazarus, and then we just kind of ignore some of the stuff that happens before then. So I want to go section by section and show some of the observations that I've made when we were looking at this. So starting at verse 1 through 4 i'm going to read it for you it's up on the, up on the screen here now a certain man was ill lazarus of bethany the village of mary and her sister martha it was mary who anointed the lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother lazarus was ill so the sister sent to him saying lord he whom you love is ill but when jesus heard it he said this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of god so that the Son of God may be glorified from it. Here's the observation. We imply because Jesus shows up in Bethany that she was, he was actually asked to come. Is that in the text? Does Mary and Martha ask him to come? No. They just announce the problem. How many times in our life, as I look at this, do we take a problem that we have and we try to massage it? We try to fix it ourselves? We try, before ever announcing the problem to God, we ask for help. Thankfully, the Hurtlers have provided me an object lesson. This is how I approach my problems. Right here. This is what I'll do for my problem. Before I ever announce it to God. Now, I have never successfully been able to do this. Not one time. Not one time. Sorry, man. I've never been able to do this. But no matter what my problem is, whether it be that I'm having trouble within my marriage, I'm having issues with my children, I seem to really be poor at just casting the problem to God. This is my problem, Lord. Here it is. I'm stuck. I don't know how to fix it. So this is what I do. I look at the problem. I work it to a point, And then I finally go... I'm done. Somebody else do this. Now, if I were to hand this to Abe, was under a minute, he'd fix it. It's got his skill. That's his skill. If I continued to do this, you would come with two conclusions of me. One, I have never used my hands for anything productive. Or I've never seen a square before. That's what the conclusion would be from this. But if I gave it to somebody who is capable of working it, Within a short period of time, the problem is fixed. Mary and Martha give give us this example. They just say to Jesus, here you go. This is the issue. The one you love is sick. They don't actually ask him to come. We infer that because he does. That's the problem. They just send it to him. What kind of faith would that take? To just send the problem to Jesus. Just announce the problem. Lord, the one you love is sick. Lord, my marriage is struggling. Lord, I have issues within my home. Lord, I have an illness. I don't know how to fix it, but I'm announcing it to you. The reality is in the situation that Jesus doesn't even have to go. We know through other verses that Jesus heals. If you look at these three examples. Jesus can heal without even going. In the story of the Syrophoenician woman, it's found in Mark and Matthew. Jesus says, your daughter is healed and she's healed. He never goes. He speaks life to the daughter. The centurion servant, I love this story. Because Jesus stands for six chapters during the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And he tells you what it's like to live in his kingdom. What his world is going to be about. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. He tells you these things. He tells you what it's like to follow him. And then the second he steps off the mountain, he runs into a centurion who is not well liked in his culture. Not at all. A Roman official. And the Roman official says, My servant is sick. Jesus has a choice in this moment. I've just said these things. Follow me. Now he has to prove it. And he speaks healing into the servant. His actions matched his words. We, were, we uh, had a sermon Pastor Chad preached on the Capernaum official's son. Again, he doesn't go. He doesn't have to. But in this particular case, even though they didn't ask for him to go, Jesus is going to choose to go. That's his friend. He wants to go. But his choice is going to come with some consequences for him. And he knows that. Working through the text 5 through 10. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, The Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. The disciples are terrified. They don't want to go. They're saying, are you kidding me? We just left there. They were trying to stone you. Why on earth would we go back? And Jesus gives this very cryptic saying about, are there not 12 hours in a day? Jesus is telling you he has a short amount of time to accomplish the work that he wants to do. And he knows he's going there and they're going to kill him. He knows that. He's going for that purpose. I'm going to resurrect my friend. I'm calling my shot here. But it's going to cost me my life. And not only am I going to die, not only am I going to resurrect my friend, I'm going to resurrect you all too. I'm giving my life for yours. He knows that. And he knows he only has a short period of time to do that. So he's trying to rally his troops. He's trying to rally his disciples. Who are all the more human. They're like, are you crazy? We all can relate to this. Here in this passage. is kind of what really jumped out at me this week. As I was prepping for it. 11 through 16. After saying these things. He said to him, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. couple of things. Sometimes I just need Jesus to speak to me like this. He tells them kind of cryptically, he's only fallen asleep. I go to wake him up. And they're like, well, if he's asleep, why why are we going? He'll recover. And Jesus is finally like, no, I'm going to go raise him from the dead. Come on. (laughs) There are times where I just need Jesus to speak to me like this. A lot of it is because I'm a man. I get it. Like, I need direct communication. But... I need Jesus to speak to me like this. Sometimes I just don't get it right, and it's okay to be that way. And Jesus graciously speaks to them in a manner that okay, you need this to understand. The second thing that leaps out at the page, and I haven't noticed, and I haven't noticed it for a long time, is Thomas's reaction here. The reason it speaks so boldly to me is because of kind of the nickname we've placed upon him throughout the annals of history. If you think of the disciple Thomas, what always follows is doubting Thomas. Right. John doesn't do him a a good service later on in the book, but he's, he's the doubter, right? The disciple that doubts. But in this moment, in this portion of history, when the danger seems pretty high, Thomas says, you go, I go. If you go to your death, I'm following you. And it just rang out true to me. The thing that I noticed is that we have two sides of him. On one hand, we have this verse. Let us also go that we may die with him. On the second hand, we have in John 20, 25, unless I see in his hands the marks in his nails and place my fingers into the mark of his nails... And place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Which, Thomas, is true? They both are. They both are. In the moment when Jesus is saying, I'm going to go raise Lazarus, he is at the peak. We've all been there. We've all been at the peak of our walk with Jesus, and we're going, Yes. Wherever you go, Lord, I will follow you. I am with you. I will be there till the end. But then there are times in our Christian walk where we are like, I can't. I can't. I need help. We are all Thomas. There are two sides to the coin that we carry. We are two sides of the same coin. And I think for a lot of us, and this is me included, that I really spend a lot of time trying to hide that other side of my coin. I will take that coin that I show you and I will polish it and I will display this one half and then I will hold that other half deeply down. Because I know and I'm afraid that if I expose that, I'm a doubter. I'm going to be labeled as something that maybe I'm not. This happens throughout the course of our history. I want to give an example of another um, church leader, and we'll get to him in a minute, but I want to read this for you. This is one of an, another famous church leader who a lot of writings are on. He's writing specifically about his feelings of the Jewish people. He writes, First, set fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover with the dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder to them. This to be done in honor of the Lord of Christendom, so that God might see that we are Christians and do not condone or knowingly tolerate such public lying, cursing, blaspheming of the Son and of his Christians. For whatever we tolerated in the past unknowingly, and I myself was unaware, will be pardoned by God. But if we now, and if we now that we are informed, were to protect and shield such a house for the Jews existing right before our very nose, in which they lie and blaspheme, curse, vilify, and defame Christ and us, as we hear from above, it would be the same as if we were doing this, and even worse, ourselves as we are well known. If I, as I read this, you would think that I pulled it from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s at the height of our modern anti-Semitism, but it is actually written by Martin Luther, the great reformer. It's a book, The Jews and Their Lies. It was written in 1543. Martin Luther, in his 95-page thesis, virtually kicks off the Protestant Reformation, which all of us are part of. But there's also this. There's two sides of the coin. So which one is him? Which side do we look for? Does the good that he does erase this? That's a tough question. And there's an answer that follows on how we should approach this. But I do the same stuff. I do the same things. I try so hard to protect anybody from finding out that other side of my coin because I'm afraid it will erase whatever good I can do of Jesus. Whatever good I can do in this world, and so I'll hide it. So, to lead from the front, I'm going to show you a little bit of the other side of my coin. I am prideful very prideful. I struggle with boasting. I love me some me. I fight my own nature constantly. I am impatient with my wife and kids. My family of origin is a mess. I am the son of a mother whose family survived the Holocaust, and my father was raised by an alcoholic who abused him. So I was raised with the premise, don't show weakness, don't show emotion. Keep people at an arm's length, because if you let them in, they're going to hurt you. My family of origins is a bit of a mess. I was involved in an incident in law enforcement where I had to take the life of another person. And I carry that with me, probably Daily. Um, I speak often before I think about it, which could be evidenced by the fact that I'm doing churchwide confession. Probably <laughs> just is true. Um, I once was thrown out of a theology class. That's a story for another day, but it's a good one. I have sat on the seat of judgment so many times that I think about all the time I wasted and I could have been doing better. But because of my feelings of judgment... I wasted time. I've been verbally abusive for humor for the humor of others. I've walked away from my calling. I've put God on the shelf. i lived in active sin, not caring what God thought. Of. I've beheld it, God. I've turned my back from God. I've chosen to be passive when I should have fought, and I've fought when I should have shown diplomacy. I use humor when I'm uncomfortable. That'll probably come here shortly. I have placed work above my family, My wife hates this. If you ever get in conflict with me where we're communicating, I laugh. I don't know why. Like, I will laugh. And what comes next is usually pretty abrasive, so she hates this. Um, I I, I actively root against the badgers. I'm sorry. And I've been known to wear socks with sandals. (laughs) I left my phone downstairs so my wife wouldn't be texting me during this moment as she remembers more of this stuff. So don't text me. But most of all, most of all, I have been a Thomas. I can think of moments in my life where I have said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever. But there have also been moments in my life when I buried my father And when I get a cancer diagnosis, and I'm wondering who's going to protect my family if I'm no longer here, where I've said to God, I will follow you. But right now, in this moment, I have to see the scars. And I have to feel your side. Because I don't have it in me to do it. But the question is, what is the remedy for this? What is the fix for this? I've been following Jesus for 30 years, and I still struggle with the flesh. What is the fix for this? The fix is in the following next two sections. Starting in John 11, 17 through 22. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, and about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she says to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. Here's the thing. Martha gives you a snapshot into the Jewish belief about resurrection. There's a common misconception that Jews do not believe in resurrection. It's a small minority, actually. Jews believe what we believe about an end times resurrection. So she says, with all kinds of faith, had you been here, I know you could have fixed this. She has all kinds of faith in him. And she says, and he tries to console her, and she says, I know, at the end, I will see them at the end. I know this. And Jesus says, stop. Wait. You don't get it. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection right now, right here, the resurrection and the life. Though he die, he will live. Do you believe this? And she says yes. Ironically enough, it's a lot of the women who recognize Jesus for who he is first. It's kind of the men that have a weird like, view of him and struggle. If you read past this and not understand what Jesus is saying... You miss it. But Jesus is drawing from this story, the Exodus story. Some of you are familiar with it. I'll read it real quick. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is to be my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout the, all the generations. So when the people of Exodus, who had forgotten God, Moses comes to God and says, what do I tell him?" God says, tell him I am who I am. I am he. They are in bondage, they are in slavery, they have forgot who God was, and the thing that Moses is supposed to lead with is, I am. And this will be proclaimed throughout the generations. And then Jesus storms onto the scene and says, I am the resurrection and life. So I ask myself, what will deliver me from my pride? What can deliver me? Who will deliver me? And Jesus says, I am. I am your deliverance. And I say, how do I reconcile with my family? Who will deliver me from this? Who's going to deliver me from this? And Jesus says, I am. I am that deliverer. I can go down the list. And the answer of who will rescue me and who will save me is I am. The answer is always Jesus. So what does that mean for us? If you are a believer and you are in Christ, all of that stuff that I've listed from, even though I battle the flesh daily, I have been delivered from that, We need to start living that way. And we need to be okay with each other. We need to be able to share each other, share each other's burdens, walk with each other. Let's not fear the Thomas label, because we all have it. If you have never experienced what it's like to give your life to Christ, and you're new to this... Then you're coming from it from a completely different angle. You're stuck in sin and you're asking yourself, my life's in shambles, my life's a mess. What can deliver me from it? He can. The I am. As Jesus raises Lazarus, I'll read the final verses from this. The other thing that stuck out to me was Jesus' statement to Lazarus. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone, Martha. The sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father... I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but on this account of the people standing around, that they believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps, and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. So Lazarus was in the first stage of their burial process. He had linen lap- wrapped around him. And when Jesus calls him out of the tomb, he doesn't say, hey, Lazarus, what's up? How's it going? Remember me, your your friend? Yeah, I brought you back. He doesn't say that. He says these words, unbind him and let him go. What are you bound by? Jesus says, let it go. If it's unrepented sin, repent, confess it, let it go. Let his salvation wash over you. If you are new and you haven't experienced this before and you're just kind of stuck and not wanting to do, I'm telling you there's freedom here. Let it go. Let us stop trying to pin that backside of the coin down and hope nobody sees us. Because it doesn't matter he sees us anyway and he's delivered us from it. Let it go. Just going through this, just, I think I immediately went to, to end on this. I immediately went to the parable of the prodigal son. And it's found in Luke. Luke's the only one who writes about it. But we do a disservice to it, or at least the people who put it in paragraphs do it a disservice to it because they say, the parable of the prodigal son. But in reality, there's two sons. If you aren't familiar with the story, very briefly, one son denounces the father, wishes he was dead, asks for his inheritance early, goes and spends it in sin and corruption, and then comes crawling back to the father when he's got nothing left, and the father opens his arms and says, Welcome back, I love you. Fatted calf, here's my robe. You're back, you're alive. What You were dead, now you're alive. The second son, who followed his father, did all the right things, but never really desired the father, gets upset and walks away. And the father has to chase him back too. There's some of us who have walked in the room who are this son, the prodigal son. The one who walked away initially and are trapped in sin and are coming back. And you're wondering, is God going to take me back? The answer is yes. And there's another part, there's another half of us they may have been like, look, I've been living this Christian life for years. I've done all the stuff. I've done all the right things. I've believed all the right things. I've said all the right things. And I'm not excited about the fact that they're back in the fold. The deliverance for you is the same. It's Christ. Salvation is not found in the stuff in the things. The salvation is found only in Jesus So as the praise team comes I just want to pray with you. And I just want to pray for you. So if you could bow your heads and pray with me. Father God I thank you that Jesus is the answer and Jesus is the way and that he is the I am that you promised at the time of Moses. And I ask that if there's anyone here and if anyone listening has something that they haven't casted to you, they haven't. there's a problem that they haven't sent to you. They've tried to fix it themselves. They've tried to massage it themselves. They've tried to come with all kinds of different ways to fix it. And it's been unsuccessful. I just ask that they would cast that burden to you. In the way that Mary and Martha do, that they would cast it to you. And Father God, I ask that if there's anyone in the room who has never met Jesus, who has walked away and is now trying to come back, I just ask that they would seek somebody out who could introduce them to Jesus. And Father, I ask if there's anyone in the room who's worried about that other side of the coin, they're living with guilt, they're living with shame, they're afraid that if they're found out, that people will think differently of them and that they will cast them out. I just ask, Lord, that they let it go and that they find somebody to walk with and that we can be a people together doing the things that benefit your kingdom. God, I thank you for Jesus and I thank you that he unbinds us and we can let it go. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.